Hi there, I'm Helena Brooke, therapist and activist in Arizona, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. Robin Renee, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. And I am Wendy Sheridan, and welcome. And how are you doing today, Robin? Ah, I'm weird today. <laughs> I, I, I had a really strange sort of upsetting dream. Oh. Uh, the whole like caught in the middle of a river and getting drawn away from my friends on the shore type of a dream which was not fun <laughs> yeah and uh so I woke up from that and I kind of was like okay no that's that's not happening I'm just it was a dream whatever <laughs> and uh had a meeting at nine at which I noticed I had no sound on my computer whatsoever and so I was in a bit of a panic to uh figure that out be before we got to our recording <laughs> session today <laughs> and we did have a bobble but you know it's okay so just Dumb technical stuff, but uh, you know, I'm basically okay. I'm. I think I've got a little bit of spring fever because it's yeah. really looking nice outside today. Yes, it's very sunny. I, I, you reminded me. I had like a unpleasant dream last night too, and it had to do with the fact I had broken a nail on my thumb last week, and because I don't know how to girl, I have no idea. I, I. You know, I people would tell me, oh, put nail polish on it. It's like, I don't have any nail polish. So I've been band-aiding it for a week and the band-aids like took the callus off my thumb. And then I tried to do the the repair myself. I went to CVS and bought a bunch of overpriced bad stuff, apparently. <laughs> I, I don't know brands. I know nothing. And I'm like going to strangers in the in the nail polish aisle and I go, is this product? Would this do this thing that I want to do? And they're looking at me like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> it's like you you're a woman you have nails you've done this haven't you like, <laughs> this is funny oh, i don't, I don't so, know how to girl is a great statement i it makes don't me know laugh. how to girl i don't um and <laughs> so so my daughter came over yesterday and she did my nails and 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 now they're looking really mostly nice except for the parts that i've already fucked up because I can't sit still for half an hour and not move my hands. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm failing at girling. I'm completely failing. But I had a dream where where the uh, the nail polish had come off and my nail was ripping more. So that was oh, the upsetting no. part. I was getting nail like, anxiety no. dreams. Yeah, nail anxiety <laughs> dreams. So that's me. I'm fine today. <laughs> I feel very femme now that I have all this nail polish on. Awesome. I like it's it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I feel boy femme when I have nail polish on, which is my interesting gender. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, those are more, definitely we should be recording that for another. We should be recording this at some yes. point. Yes. And, and actually, uh, my, this is now prompting me to tell you guys 
that or you people or all y'all Oh yeah, all y'all. I have to remember that's that's a, I know guy. It, guys is a very non-gendered term in New Jersey. Yes, <laughs> and apparently in California too. But apparent, but other apparently, I have been told by other people that it's not it, that it is gendered, and they would prefer not to hear that when I okay. So all okay. y'all. <laughs> In our last We Should Be Recording This Witch, uh, posted as our February exclusive Patreon segment, we talked about grief anniversaries because that was, we both have grief anniversaries in February. And you can hear these segments for as little as $1 a month at our front row seat level on Patreon. So please join us on patreon.com slash leftscape because your support is really helpful for maintaining our show budget and just having us be able to produce the show. And we thank you. Absolutely. And, and I just want to add that grief, grief anniversaries is, um, you know, it's heavy because it's about grief, but it's also, I like getting to different insights we get to and it's not, like it's it's not a big bummer. Like it might sound like oh, I don't want to hear about that, but it's you know I I really just speaking to you directly, Wendy. I really appreciate our conversations, and oh, I I feel thanks. like we um we connect in ways that it's cool and it's good to share. I, I enjoy sharing it too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I have a couple of rewinds from our last show. Um, the first one was that we were somehow we were talking about leafy greens that we were saying that there's something in it that is potentially poisonous. And I think, Wendy, you were saying that it was one of the vitamins, vitamin A or something like that. And I think well, that there are- Well, and it had, it, inter, it interfered with uh, blood thinners. Right, right. That, that could be it. But I remember that what I was thinking of was something else and it's oxalic acid. Okay. I had to look it up because I was like, what is that? What was the thing I was trying to think of? <laughs> and, you know, and so I, I found an article that talks about, you know, nine foods you shouldn't eat in large quantities. But it's kind of funny because they're giving you this warning. But the warning is so I, I imagine somebody in the world would try to do this. But apparently, like, for example, more than seven pounds of spinach a day can be dangerous. So <laughs> in case you were considering eating more than seven pounds of spinach in a day, um, you've been warned, but <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what seven pounds of spinach looks like. I mean, it cooks down pretty, it, it cooks, cooks down a lot. Well, is it seven pounds dry? Cause I mean, if you get it, once you cook it down, it's heavy cause it's wet. Right. I don't know. So, <laughs> now I'm really confused. So it's either you eat like a, a pickup trucks worth of spinach a day. <laughs> Could be. And I, you know, I could I, believe that somebody would have a, written down a diet that would be, you know, like you have to have all of your food with leafy green vegetables or something, which could maybe lead to that. But it's, you know, don't mix, mix it up. People don't eat seven pounds of yeah. spinach. There I mean, you go. <laughs> the other thing, which I thought was really cool, we, uh, we talked about Quentin Quarantino's Rush Limbaugh Memorial Planned Parenthood fundraiser, which he ran on Instagram, which he wanted to raise $10,000 it wound up raising $1,209,567.03, which is very specific. <laughs> and, and there were 46,186 donors. So I think wow. that was a fitting way to uh, 
send that guy off. Yes. <laughs> and do some good too. So very cool. And now it's time for our three random facts. Yes. Fact number one. The Great Vowel Shift was a series of changes in pronunciation of the English language that took place primarily between 1400 and 1700, beginning in southern England, and today it's influenced effectively all English dialects. Um, English spelling started being standardized in the 15th and 16th centuries, and the Great Vowel Shift is the major reason that our spellings are ridiculous compared to <laughs> how they sound, how the words sound in many uh, cases. So I, I think that's, I'm really interested in linguistics lately. This might become like a geekscape at some point, but, um, I, but yeah, I like that okay. fact. It's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. Here's one of my facts. Thomas the Goose first rose to celebrity when he was a young male in the gaggle at Waimanu Lagoon in New Zealand. And I hope I pronounced that right but I probably didn't. <laughs> so there Thomas was observed shunning other geese in favor of the company of a male black swan named Henry. The couple were together for 18 happy years before a female swan, Henrietta flew into the picture. Henry and Henrietta began to nest together, but instead of the traditional monogamous pair bond normally shared among both geese and swans, Thomas stuck around and they became a dedicated triangular unit. He helped raise Henry and Henrietta's 83 signets over the next 12 years. Eventually, Thomas outlived Henry and was cared for by the Wellington Bird Rehabilitation Trust after he went blind. Thomas died very recently. I think it was last week. And he, was, he has been buried next to his partner, Henry. Oh, so. <laughs> I, I love this story. It makes me very... Um, oh. It's just well, Thomas nice. was 40 when he passed. So I think that's a very long life for a goose. I think I'm it is. Sure. That's <laughs> very cool. This a is a life. really lovely story. Yes. <laughs> and, and our third fact for the day is just something I, I observed. Uh, March has World Poetry Day, World Puppetry Day, and World Puppy Day. Uh, and I have to ask, is this is March also alliteration month? Okay. <laughs> nice. Very cool. We should write a poem about it. And I, I'm not a puppeteer, so I'm not going to try that. But, <laughs> but that's cool. Thank you for this, Bex. So I'm excited about our show today. Coming up later today, I spoke with Helena Brooke, and we're going to share that conversation with you. Uh, Helena is a marriage and family therapist and a mental health counselor in <laughs> Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, she's been working on a campaign to stop legislation that prevents the banning of so-called conversion therapy. Ooh. So, yeah, she, just, she has a lot to say about that issue, at, but also about how the issue is being framed and some of the um, problems with that and some of the things we might consider changing about how we talk about these things. So I'm looking forward to playing that later. And our Ikigai segment, we're going to talk about what you're good at and uh, also imposter syndrome. Do you want to say more about that, Wendy, or are we just going to go into it? I'm going to say more about it when we go into it. <laughs> All right. Very good. Before we hit the news, I just want to give a shout out to our Leftscape listeners and thank you so much for checking out our show. And we did get a couple of tweets, which are very, very cool and, and encouraging. Um, so dot com, at dot com shadow 
said, Dear fellow Dems, please go to Patreon and support my precious sisters at Leftscape. Oh, they're the most intelligent, <laughs> thoughtful, brave, bold, compassionate, funny people you'll ever hear. Their podcast is just right. Just enough news with interviews and a super cozy blanket for it. <laughs> oh my God. I need to get on Twitter more because I need to read those too. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was really, really cool. And, and uh, you know, commented back saying yeah, thanks and everything. And uh, then they also made a suggestion. They say uh, more YouTube, please. So, Oh my God. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I know like I am very, I'm trying to be less camera shy, but it's going to be a hard sell for me okay <laughs> maybe if i can find that cat filter that that lawyer was using i can <laughs> i would love that i would totally hang out with you as a cat we have we have the filter it's on our last show notes so we okay, can do it. okay. <laughs> but um no i think you know maybe maybe something costumey or i'm gonna think of how to get you on camera we'll see what we can all do. right <laughs> but thank you thank you to dot com shadow um we really yes. appreciate that feedback and until and, and about you know letting people other people know about us that was a really awesome yeah uh, thing so thank you so much you, you know can... so that is a long time listener and if you're new to the show I just want to say hello and welcome to you too thank yeah, you so much hi. thanks for tuning in uh you can catch a new episode of the leftscape every other wednesday and you can subscribe on our website leftscape.com you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And while you're on our website, please sign up for our monthly newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. We are also fans of alliteration. I, I, will, admit, <laughs> I, I will admit that, okay? <laughs> yes, this is definitely true. <laughs> and uh, please also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Follow us on Twitter at Leftscape and follow us on Instagram at Leftscape as well. We love uh, keeping in touch with you in all those ways. And uh, now here's all the news we can handle. Yes, uh, this is our first March show. So on top of all of those days I talked about, it is Women's History Month. Endometriosis Awareness Month, Craft Month, and Bisexual Health Awareness Month. Yes. And uh, actually, uh, Helena Brooke and I spoke a little bit about Bisexual Health Awareness Month awesome. as well in our interview. So that will be cool. And I guess we'll be referencing some of these like in our social media. We might get some conversations going about some of the topics as yes. well that come up this month. So. Yes, I'm I'm actually working on an infographic for endometriosis awareness to get I'm and hopefully I'll get it done before March is over. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds ambitious. That's very cool. It is. It is. I mean, it would be easier if I actually suffered from it, which I don't, and I'm very glad that I don't because I have friends that do suffer from it and it's horrible. Kings of Leon are the first band to release an album on NFT. And I admit that I am not fully versed in what this is. So it sounds exciting and interesting to me. Oh, but wait sales... a is, is this crypto art? Is this like... Yes, exactly. Bitcoin That's... music? Basically, yes. Oh, so... my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it, they, they, uh, this was released on Friday. And you have two weeks to, to buy it in this form. It's basically, it's called Non-Fungible Token. And they are the first 
full band, I guess, to ever do this. The, the release is called uh, When You See Yourself. Hmm. And so, yes, yeah, so, there's three have... different types of things. You, you get the audio visual in one. There's, um, there's, there's three different sort of levels, I guess, of things you can get. It's a type of cryptocurrency. And, and instead of holding money, it can hold assets like art, tickets and music and things like that. So I need to learn more about this myself. But it sounds like a fascinating new development. It is... It is fascinating, but it is also very, very bad for the environment. I and I really mm. hate to burst your bubble. I because the only reason I know about this is because what was it? My daughter was was I think she has, you know, ten dollars in Dogecoin. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard. Yeah, well, that was this all. This all was fallout from the the stock thing with GameStop. That's how she started getting into all of this. And and I did a little bit of research because then I saw an article about art being used, cryptocurrency being used for art, but the, envi- I, this is something I didn't even know about. It's like the environmental Can impact. I what? I want to guess. What okay, guess. Say. Guess. Is it because there are so many computers operating to create this thing? Yes. Or maintain it? Yes. It no, uses okay. massive amounts of electricity to okay. create a thing, you know, the Bitcoin, the, it's the blockchain stuff. Right. That uses massive, massive amounts of electricity. Yeah, it's a cool thing, but our, you know, we need to not destroy our planet. So <laughs> I, right. I have mixed feelings about all of it. Yeah, that's that's good to know. And you know, I'm, I guess I'm interested in the technology that makes it possible. But I also think, you know, if that's the case, it doesn't need to become the norm. You know, hopefully it's more an, a, a novelty or something like that. Yeah, but. I hope so. We are running out of time to keep the world habitable for human beings. And, and in other stupid things, uh, people in Idaho are burning masks at the state capitol in protest about something. And apparently the people running this protest are also like the heads of the local John Birch Society. So take that all with the salt that you need to take it. <sighs> I just, you know, come on, guys. Yeah, I have to admit, I was really disheartened when states started to just end all mask mandates or any restrictions whatsoever. I, I believe it's Texas and Mississippi, I think, are the two that um, did that. Yes. It might be more. Yeah, I don't know. And it's Florida's uh, not far behind. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's discouraging, but I'm hoping, I mean, I'm glad that I did see a lot of media and a lot of discussion about, you know, just because someone lives mandate doesn't mean you need to run out and do all these things. So hopefully the, the you know, the, the, the sensible people in those places will know that it's not time to do that yet. And uh, something I saw this morning, this is Monday when we record uh, they started the jury selection in the George Floyd murder case in Minneapolis. And uh, they're planning to live stream this trial from three courtroom cameras. And this is the trial for Officer Chauvin. Um, the yeah. other three policemen are scheduled to be tried in August. So I guess that's something to keep tabs on. Yeah, absolutely. And COVID relief bill has passed, which... It sounds encouraging to me. I know that there's a lot, um, there's a lot more money in it than Obama's bill that he passed um, 
to sort of help us get out of the um, out of the recession in 08. Mm. Um, so I think it might do more because one of the criticisms about the Obama years was that the economy really faltered for longer because they didn't they weren't able to pass like a big enough bill to sort of stimulate the economy and that sort of thing. So I'm hoping that this this is a positive thing. It passed without the minimum wage increase. We had this this is passed the Senate, not not back to the House, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So, you know, so yeah, so so that's that's a good thing. I am I'm I don't know about the whole minimum wage thing. It's like strange to me that so many people, so many Democrats are against, you know, a minimum wage um, increase up to $15. It seems like reasonable, humane. Like, I, like I'm wondering if it's just so you can say you're a fiscal conservative or say that you're being responsible or is it that they re- some people really believe that you're not people. Some people aren't good enough to make fifteen dollars an hour at or that the government do. isn't isn't They're supposed to man or that that's it's it's a state by state thing. Who knows? Right. I, you know, and it's also well. I will say. I mean, the current minimum wage isn't enough for anybody anywhere, but cost of living is regional. It that's varies true. by region because you know fifteen an hour won't get you anything in New York. You can't live in New York on that. Right. For, in New York City, anyway, you know, mm-hmm. and, and L.A. And, and San Francisco, you know, the big cities where it's really expensive, where housing is, you know, a, a, a tiny studio apartments like two thousand a month. How can you fucking. Yeah, that's there? not that's not a possible thing. You'd have yeah. to have four jobs or something, you know, <laughs> but um, no, that well, that is true. I mean, I can understand that. On some level, yeah, it's going to be different in one place or, or another, but um I don't know. Minimal, minimally acceptable wages seems uh, like a maybe, reasonable thing to me. And, and, but I think it's you know they they did they needed to separate that piece of it in order to get this COVID passed. I mean that could be so. they could have put it in there just so when they took it out it would it would conciliate enough people to pass the bill. Mm. You know they do stuff like that too. I don't know. Politics is kind of you know dark magic to me as it is. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> um. uh, yeah. So, well, this is sort of a humorous thing, I suppose. Um, so, Sailor Sable, Sable. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I don't know her. Last You're just name. Gonna, I, I didn't know her name at all. This is the the woman who sang the national anthem at CPAC. Which, yes. If you haven't seen the video and you're not, and you don't have perfect pitch, you can watch it safely. <laughs> it's it's I uh, you know I'm not even sure if that's true. <laughs> it's well, an no, interesting it's... rendition. It was it was I believe she sang in four different keys overall at over the least, course of the song. At least I well, think there were seven key changes. Well, I was but... watching so, and I don't I don't want to. All right, maybe I do want to make fun of her a little, but what what I mostly want to do is say who who was listening to her rehearse who didn't kind of tell her maybe you might want to reconsider this. Did she rehearse? I don't know. I would imagine so. If you're, if you're about <laughs> she to. Did, she did have it. She was singing it acapella. So she was singing acapella and very confidently. So it, it indicated to me that she didn't, she didn't have a sense that 
she was possibly going off key somewhere. You know what I mean? Well, off key, she was just changing key. She just changing key, just singing another key. And, and it's and some of the parody videos show it even more so because they're doing a piano accompaniment and they're changing their keys every that, you know that's what i was gonna that's what i was gonna say about it like <laughs> you know that that part of it is entertaining to me <laughs> that people took the time because you know youtube and the, the the internet in general is very creative and some ridiculous very ways. snarky and mean <laughs> right <laughs> but the piano accompaniment was pretty cool when i saw i saw a four-part harmony that joined in with her. Oh my so god! They did really? like a barbershop quartet, and and I, I find it kind of amazing that you could actually transcribe what she actually did and <laughs> follow it and create around it. You know, I think there oh was a, there was a yeah there was um some strings sections that I haven't watched yet and all that. It's kind of it's uh if you need a break, that's <laughs> an interesting thing to watch. I I have to tell you, my daughter, I I sent her the video. I think she had seen it already, but we were commenting amongst ourselves about it. And and she texts me back. Yeah, my first comment is, whose niece is this? Oh, no. (laughs) And then her boyfriend, when if you're listening to it, I think when she's she holds one note kind of a long time. And there was a person during that who who yelled out woohoo and then when that happened her boyfriend said that's the that's whose niece it is (laughs) (laughs) oh man well (laughs) our final news piece (laughs) is and this came up um i got a notification on it when we started on the call today is that the cdc finally published guidelines for what to do after you get your COVID vaccine. And here's the quick bullet list. I'm hoping it's going to be quick. You are able to, after you are fully vaccinated, so if you're getting the two-part, it has to be after your second shot and after you've recovered from your second shot, because I've been hearing from friends who've gotten it, the second shot kind of kicks your butt. As you're able to visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing. You can visit with unvaccinated people from a single household who are at low risk for severe COVID-19 disease indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing. Hmm. Wait, say that again. If if they are low risk, you can can visit without a mask. Okay, right. Refrain from quarantine and testing following a known exposure if asymptomatic. The CDC says fully vaccinated people should continue to take these precautions, which are take precautions in public, like wearing a well-fitted mask and physical distancing, wear masks, practice physical distancing, and adhere to other prevention measures measures when visiting with unvaccinated people who are at increased increased risk for severe COVID-19 disease or who have unvaccinated household members who are at increased risk. So basically that one is, and it's a, and they also wear masks when visiting with unvaccinated people from multiple households, avoid medium and large sized in-person gatherings, get tested if experiencing COVID-19 symptoms, follow your guidance issued by individual employers and follow CDC and health department travel requirements and recommendations. So your vaccine isn't a free pass to just go all Texas and and Mississippi out on you. Um, (laughs) You can't go all Texas out. Even if you've been vaccinated, you still need to take care 
around people who haven't been vaccinated yet, and especially around people who are at risk. So, right, not, you know, because it's, it's not possible. For, right, exactly, because it's possible for you to get it, but you just your likelihood of getting really sick are very low. I mean, you know, your your likelihood of getting of contracting it are low, but then if you do get it and have no or very few symptoms, like you may not know. So you do need to still be careful with other people. I'm, I'm going to be curious about how how to get together with groups. Like, will there be a point where they say, okay, you can have a larger group if everyone's vaccinated, then that's cool or, you know, I don't know. Well, I mean, it sounds like if you can visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing, that kind of means you could be with a bunch of people right. who have all been vaccinated. But I guess if you it's have to a really very large in-person gathering, you have to trust everyone at that gathering to have been vaccinated. Right. Yeah. <sighs> we're getting there we're getting slowly, there. Not, slowly. Yeah. anyway <laughs> i think that is I all think the news i can all, handle yeah that's all the news we can handle today this podcast is sponsored by wearing pants during video conferences you tell yourself you won't stand up you promise yourself you won't stand up then you forget and you stand up next time try Wearing pants during video conferences. On sale now wherever webcams are sold. And now, back to our podcast. Well, I am here with Helena Brook. Uh, Helena is a marriage and family therapist and a mental health counselor in Phoenix, Arizona. She is a PhD student with a research focus on how therapists cope with ethical and clinical mistakes. So welcome. It's nice to talk to you. Great to talk to, to you too, Robin. <laughs> awesome. Um, so you sent me some, some really good information. You were recently involved with stopping a piece of legislation in your state. Um, it was called SB 1482. Yeah. And it's Referred to as a therapy ban prohibition bill. What what does that exactly mean? Yeah, so um, I guess the backstory was that um, so people think of Arizona as this you know really extreme red state, and not really the case. Um, we're kind of purple. Um, our our governors are Republican. Both of our senators are Democrats. Um, but our legislature as with many other states, um, due to gerrymandering, uh, has a lot of extremism. And um, I think what happened was uh, Pima County, which leans to the left, had done something really cool and had banned conversion therapy because it literally kills people. And um, if your listeners don't know, that's when that's when people uh, promise to turn uh, uh, LGBT people straight and cisgender and all of that. So and, and it, it leads to disaster and self-loathing and it rips families apart. And so Pima County banned it. And the legislature, I think, and this was in 2017, so the past couple of years, the legislature has decided that they didn't want local municipalities doing things like that. And so what they did under the guise of religious freedom was tried to say that no municipality and no board, regulatory board, can forbid that kind of uh, that kind of thing. 
And the issue with that is that with the the six professions that are governed by the two boards, the psychology board and behavioral health board, that's literally against our code of ethics. Because if something is found to be empirically harmful, we we can't do that. You know, we don't we don't do things like that. And so the legislature was arguing uh, that the proponents of the bill were that were saying that therapy is really only speech. It's not healthcare, which is. I take offense at that, but they were saying that people should have a quote unquote right to their free speech to be able to pursue these endeavors. And they wanted to essentially force our professions to make a home for this really horrific uh, type of intervention. They tried to push it through with religious freedom and then, you know, it, it didn't pass. Essentially, they were trying to ram it through under the guise that they were protecting religious liberty and that they were taking a stand against government overreach when really it was the legislature trying to reach into something that the executive branch um, regulates, which is the professions. And so it didn't pass under the guise of religious freedom because it was essentially saying that people should have the religious freedom to encroach on professions and hurt people um, didn't work. And then uh, a few days later, they sent it in as something called a striker bill um, under a different committee, which is sort of like the Hail Mary pass when something doesn't doesn't succeed um, in committee. And they totally reframed it. And they they said it was under the guise of sexual freedom, which, you know, it still still didn't make it. But that was that was the gist of it. They wanted to prevent uh, uh, municipalities and boards from banning behaviors that could hurt people, pretty much. That is really frightening sounding, and I'm, I'm glad that you've been spearheading this effort, for sure. I definitely want to talk to you more about the ways those arguments were framed, but first I kind of want to go back. Like, you know, I have an intuitive understanding of how horrible conversion therapy is just from the, the bits I've heard about it. I know I certainly would not want to undergo something like that. Yeah. But can you talk a little bit about what people actually do in these therapies or how, you know, yeah. Yeah, what happens? So, um, so essentially uh, it's, it's pretty much snake oil um, and it, it runs a really wide gamut. So some of the most notorious examples are things like, for example, telling uh, telling clients that they need to have positive physical touch experiences with people of the same gender that aren't of a sexual nature in order to reprogram their brain to uh, to be more inclined to only have sexual touch with people of a different gender. Um, and so that's, you know, people under the guise of doing therapy have uh, inappropriately touched clients, have wanted to uh, hold them while not being clothed. One of the people who testified at uh, at the committee meeting, um, he's a psychiatrist in, um, I think in the DC area now, um, was talking about how when his parents sent him, um, he was encouraged to go skinny dip with, uh, with other boys his age. And then um, some confidential information about how he felt about his body was uh, disclosed to everyone else there. And then he was ridiculed. So things wow. like that. Yeah. So, um, it, it has included in the past people inflicting pain on themselves when they have sexual thoughts about their same gender. It includes, uh, you know, things that are serious like that, but then also things that might seem more innocuous that are actually like so much more harmful. So telling parents, for example, and children, 
that the reason they're having these thoughts is because they need to uncover some kind of missing trauma um, or that the fact that they can't get rid of those thoughts is because there's something that happened to them. Um, people get people get accused of abuse. Um, it rips, rips families apart. And even just so the it's idea like of, the false memory thing that they yeah, sort of pre- create. Yeah, they yeah. I mean, sending families and teens on these wild goose chases for traumas that might not have happened. And then even to the point where they're promising these parents that their child is going to be changed. And when it doesn't work, there's this this implosion in the family of whose fault is it that this didn't work when really the evidence just shows that just like your height or how your hair grows out of your head, it's not something immutable. Right. Right. Wow. That's, it's like, I, I kind of, like I said, I kind of had an intuition about how those kind of things work. And every time I hear stories about it, it's just really disturbing. It's crazy. Not good stuff. Yeah. Um, So but the other, you know, damaging aspect about this whole process is that there are the, the broader ways we're even talking about cases like this. Yeah. So what are, and I know you alluded to some of it a little bit, what are the mistakes that we're, people are making, like on the left and the right, in terms of how we talk about conversion therapy, how we frame it? Yeah, so I think the biggest issue is just even having the word therapy in there. And um, the fact is that mental health professionals are providing health care, just like physical therapists and doctors and nurses, dentists. Um, and by treating treating what we're doing like we're just pulling it out of our head. The the idea that uh, that we that therapy is about you know, telling people what to do or how to feel or judging themselves. That's not what therapy is about. And unfortunately, in the legislature, from both sides, they were treating it like a debate on conversion therapy itself and not a debate on, well, wait a minute, this is this is a profession that is empirically backed and that has years and years of discourse and research and community and professional standards and unfortunately, when when we turn it into some sort of a a yelling match over over something like this, unfortunately, it it ends up not really not really serving the public at all. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you think the mistakes that are made in terms of how it's talked about are they intentional because it's the easiest way to win, or is it people just really um, misunderstanding? Well, I think I think it's it's a different answer on the left than it is on the right. What I notice, um, I think on the right, it's really, really intentional because for some reason, it seems like those of us who um, those of us who have views that are a little more progressive on some things, we've like given up the idea that, you know, religious liberty is a value to us, too. We just interpret it differently. Um, Government overreach, the idea that the, the right has exclusive domain over terms like liberty, government overreach, First Amendment. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that if the left started using terms like that the way they should be used and sort of, you know, putting the messaging forth that way, that would be really helpful. But as long as the right decides that they have domain over freedom itself, which is sort of the overarching theme of our country, you know, unfortunately, they're going to win the sound bites. And then as far as the left, what I've been really noticing is that. I think we take uh, we take for granted when people are on our side, um, but they don't really know why they're on our side. And so, for example, with this particular bill, 
there were, I think, five Republicans and three Democrats on the committee. And um, none of the Democrats took an opportunity to sort of ask those of us who were there from the mental health perspective about why we felt the way we did and the underpinnings of our ethics. And instead, it was just like, conversion therapy is bad, conversion therapy is bad. But that's not going to that's not going to coalition build and it's not going to be a lasting strategy because this, this bill is going to come back next year, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So how do you, how do you build that? Like, what are the things that they should have been asking? Like what's the, yeah. the deeper conversation? Yeah. I mean, I, I think just really asking us, you know, questions that would have illuminated the difference between speech and therapy, you know, cause what we do as professionals is healthcare. And uh, unfortunately, I think they just didn't even know the questions to ask, you know, and thankfully the bill got voted down. But um, if, I think if, if, if we, if we're able to, you know, partner with, um, partner with legislators and try and get them to see that just being on our side isn't enough, that understanding why it matters, understanding the, the sort of professional ramifications is really important. And I think we, sometimes we get so, we rest too easily when it, when it comes to allyship and coalition building. And so I would honestly take someone who might not line up as well with sort of the overall goal, as long as they understood sort of, they were open to understanding the depth of the situation over someone who just doesn't like conversion therapy, but doesn't take the time to, you know, let us, you know, let us answer questions or invite us to meetings. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's really like building an ongoing relationship with people you're working with and, you know, just getting to the you know, getting to a particular result with one issue yeah, is really not the point, you know, that yeah. makes sense to me. Completely. So saying that therapy is speech, it's basically like you're talking and so therefore you're allowed to say whatever you want. Is that sort of what yeah. they're exactly. Exactly. Okay. And the, the man who, it's, it was an out-of-state lobbyist wrote the bill, um, I think with, with the support of what's called legislative uh, Uh, council, I think, in our state. And his whole thing was, you know, this is just speech. People are allowed to give whatever advice they want. And it essentially undercut what we do as clinicians. The other part of what he was saying, which was really alarming to me, was that if people have been harmed in therapy, that they should just go sue the therapist and that that should be the recourse that people have. But the problem is, if you've been harmed in therapy and something happened where, you know, ethical rules were broken, right now, there's an opportunity to go to the regulatory board and go with your confidentiality intact and be able to approach them and talk about what went wrong and why it was a problem and how you've been harmed without trying to go after someone for money. But what this guy was proposing was essentially taking voice and agency away from all of the clients who might be wronged by this type of thing and essentially saying, if you've been harmed, you have to sue, which means that you have to go to a lawyer, convince them, unless they're super, super generous people, that your case is you know, at least worth six figures, you know, and go through all of these hoops. And essentially, clients' voices end up getting gatekept. And that's the other issue with the, with the type of thing that they were advocating, essentially saying everything should go to the court system. And if people's damages aren't high enough, then they just shouldn't have a voice at all. Mm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it just sounds like a mischaracterization of the whole process, really. Yeah, it's. I think uh, what it it really just comes from the fact that the legislators and the lobbyists really just don't understand what we do as a profession. Right. Right. Wow. Um, so, in the broader conversations that we have about politics, being able to, you know, understand that it's not about speech; it's about you know, an actual profession that you need to, you know, that mm -hmm. is a, a substantive thing. But then there, the other things you mentioned, um, using words like liberty and First Amendment, and how, how do we reclaim those just, yeah. just on the broader pro political spectrum? Yeah. Because I've I, wondered about that, too. Like, I've been, like, afraid to have a flag out because people will think yeah. that means I'm conservative or something, yeah. you know what I mean? And that's that's what's so scary because, you know, this is our country and our meaning in the broader sense, not our meaning just progressives or just, you know, whatever. The point is that any time that we that we relinquish our right to to celebrate that we're citizens and um or or residents in in this in this country, um it's it's really tragic. You know, every time that an election comes around, it's always take back the country, reclaim the country, and every side is saying it. And those those images like like you were talking about with a flag or talking about, you know, the Bill of Rights, which is so central to everything we stand for, we need to use those words more. I, I think I think what happens is sometimes on the left we we get a little we get a feeling of paralysis when we want to use a word like liberty because we're afraid that people are going to, you know, step out and start calling us QAnons or fascists or something. And, and that's, it's, it's so bizarre even saying it out loud. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, and I, I do know that feeling of getting like it caught in my throat and like, should I say that? Or it'll be like you or some of us will censor ourselves before yeah. it comes out. Yeah. And it's, I think tone policing, and I, I, I think it happens on all parts of the political spectrum, but especially when we're communicating through written discourse and short snippets like Facebook and Twitter, people have these visceral reactions to certain words. And when we're not there to see each other's faces and hear each other's voices and have real-time responses, ultimately people can make a lot of assumptions. And I think everyone is just so overcautious. But the words themselves, for example, government overreach, it's it's bizarre to me that only people on the right use that term. If you look at this bill, for example, the legislature was trying to overreach into another branch of government that regulates the professions, and yet they were claiming that they were the ones standing against overreach. And so, you know, we need to get comfortable using that language because at the end of the day, I think a lot of times we lose the people sort of in the middle of the road, you know, and mm -hmm. if we can if we can just get comfortable saying First Amendment and religious liberty, I mean, religious liberty doesn't just mean for the dominant religion. It means for anyone who has any spiritual path that wants to practice in a way that doesn't harm other people, you know? Yes. So Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. So what are the efforts you're making now with this this type of yeah. legislation or beyond? Yeah. So um, right now uh, I've been working um, sort of under the umbrella of ASCA, which is the Arizona Counseling Association in collaboration with Ann Ordway, who is the, the director of ASCA right now. I'm working on trying to build a coalition of, of professionals from the six professions governed by those two boards, plus psychiatry and psych nursing. 
because at the end of the day, a lot of times we're, we're trying to advocate for the same things, but we just don't have the resources and the collective voice to really matter. And what we were noticing with, with this one, I mean, the, the legislation just came on super, super fast and ASCA came out pretty strongly against it and a lot of letters went in. But some of the other agents, uh, some of the other organizations are, are smaller. The associations don't have as much, as much um, force when it comes to legislative action. And, and there were a lot of other bills that other associations were concerned with. And so if we're able to come together as as a as a coalition of professionals, maybe our voices can rise in ways that maybe our pocketbook can't because, you know, therapists aren't a wealthy bunch, but we're passionate. And so we're trying to get together as a group. And personally, I've been reaching out to a lot of the more moderate, more open-minded legislators in our state from both sides of the aisle, because at the end of the day, the votes that matter are kind of those swing votes and um, still trying to build relationships on the left as well. But I think, you know, just the idea that we need to we need to speak to everyone over there, because if we can build bridges, just like what happened in the committee this time, one vote was what mattered, you know? Yeah, that's huge. And and I was Arizona in the presidential election was such a surprise and gift. I was so happy. Yeah, I was so happy. Yeah. And it was, you know, I, 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 you know, I know that there were a lot of efforts to, you know, write postcards and do all kinds of, you know, people from all, all the places to get to the swing states. And just the Arizona was one and was seen as possible was like a pipe dream. And then the fact that it came around for us was great. It was really cool. And one of the things that I think people don't realize about Arizona, like even though our legislature is a little bit wacky, overall, the pulse is kind of Barry Goldwater. You know, it's kind of live and let, slightly conservative, but not to the point of taking people's liberties away. And the way that voting worked this year, just like for the last 20 plus years, I mean, we've always had a very strong mail-in voter precedent. Both parties had always been pushing people to get on the permanent early voter list. And so all of that uprising about, you know, things not, you know, things going wrong or whatever, uh, that was just really weird because one of the things that is so cool about Arizona is that our voting has been so forward thinking for a long time and has been really accessible. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I'm glad that the more I think the more options we have to vote and the more of uh, times available we have, the better. And um, some of the efforts to lock down voting now in the country yeah. is pretty disturbing. But yeah. I'm glad that you've been on the forefront of that. Yeah, it's like if you if you really believe in your side and your principles, then you know st- essentially stand by your dish. Like you know, let everybody vote. <laughs> You know, um, exactly. if you can only win by restricting the voting access, then then that's that should be embarrassing. It's just my right. opinion, right? <laughs> that's a, I, I like that opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So March is Bisexual Health Awareness Month. Yes. And uh, I wondered if you happen to have any thoughts on that and what we have the opportunity to learn or focus on this month. That is a big platform for me. And I know like you and I go way back in that community and sort of, you know, shared activist spaces. I think for me, one of the biggest efforts, especially through the therapist lens, is that I notice for all 
for all marginalized, oppressed, and somewhat different communities, having access to your history and to your foreparents and all of that is, it's so rich and so beautiful and so important and identity affirming. And unfortunately, with all of the, I guess, I hate this term, but label wars that have happened over the last couple decades, mm. um, with where it is right now, um, it seems like our youth really does not have access to our history. And, you know, I think whatever labels people choose, the fact is that we still have a lot more work to do to destigmatize the, you know, the, the heritage label. And because mm. otherwise our youth don't have access to these incredible stories and the fact that we've been there since the beginning. And, you know, there are still barriers to research, to care. And, um, and so I think that's the direction we need to go in because whatever people's label, they have a right to know their heritage as a community, you know? Yeah, that's, that's huge way of thinking about this that I wouldn't have thought of. That's really, thank you for that. <laughs> and yeah, so just the word itself, I guess the word itself has been a, has been worrisome to a lot of people for a bunch of reasons. And now I, I see even more so, yeah, with new words coming around and that sort of thing. Yeah. The other thing that I really that I'm trying to help get the word out about is in, in therapist trainings, especially in couples therapy trainings, people like to identify a couple based on who they're with and what they look like as opposed to people's identities. And mm -hmm. it's, it's major erasure. And it's, it's not just setting clients up to feel unheard and unseen, but it's setting therapists up to have a really shocked facial expression when you find out that one partner's, um, you know, prior partner was a different gender or um, the the person they had an affair with plot twist was a different gender and you know, it's, it's it leaves a lot <laughs> right. of especially heterosexual therapists like deer in the headlights and that's not helpful to clients and so that's kind mm. of the other direction I feel like from a clinical standpoint we want to go in. what um what are your thoughts about about uh by health month that that is a good question. And I feel like I have not thought about it nearly enough. But what comes to mind is that I've had some pretty horrific experiences with one with a gynecologist mm. who was shocked to, and most of this is about polyamory, but because I am also bi, that I was part of that whole equation, you know, mm, yep. that you know, that I was not monogamous and that I, I should be looking to be married to a man kind of thing was something was wrong or something was off because of that, you know, mm. um, and to be in a very vulnerable situation, literally in the stirrups in one case in, oh, at man. the gynecologist where I was like called out and questioned and, uh. you know, treated like something was wrong with me because I wanted to have STI testing or whatever, you know, yeah. Um, that was horrible. <laughs> and another case where it was with a, a counselor who, um, a therapist, who I was talking about relationships and they just didn't, they weren't hearing that I was serious and had been in a very committed relationship that I was broken about ending. And just kind of, no matter what I said, didn't take it seriously. Yeah. Um, and I think the more that I can come out as, as bi and also poly in my case, 
in situations like that and know that that can be a trusted topic, that it's not an anomaly or treated as a problem. Yeah. You know, so it's really about, it's, I guess it's it's partly about being out, but it's also about counselors and therapists having enough education and enough just experience with different types of people. Definitely. I mean, I, you know. I know that one thing that I come across a lot, especially especially with peers um, in group consult, I think a lot of times we're so, as a profession, so exuberant about wanting to make space for someone that we might not know that we're incorporating some stereotypes or being too enthusiastic. So I had a, a friend and she said it was okay, I could talk about this. Um, she was seeing a client who came out as bi and all of a sudden she was conceptualizing this client as so much more creative and flexible and all these things that, you know, she might think of as positive, but at the end of the day, like, are they lining up with who the client is or is this just because your client told you that, that they're dating someone of a different gender than their prior partner? And we sat, we talked about it. And I think it was a real sort of lean in and learn experience because ultimately this client, you know, had some, had some traits that, that would have been overlooked and that might have needed support, some support like anxiety and, and um, things like that, that because the buy label sort of led to all these uh, expectations about their character and their personality could have been missed, you know? Right, right. Wow. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. You would never think uh, of it though, you know? <laughs> no. And I have thought that, you know, positive stereotypes are not necessarily good. Yes. But I hadn't thought of that one in particular. That's interesting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I guess that's the case with all, um, with all groups that need visibility. I think sometimes as therapists, I guess, since we're sort of in that space, um, you know, getting so exuberant and thinking that you're being supportive when really someone just wants some space, you know, to sort of be themselves, you know, the, the danger of sort of seeing a collective, even if we think it's a positive thing, it, it might, it might invalidate a client. So, and the same thing, like you were saying at the, at the gynecologist, like, you know, it, it's really important for professionals to pause and listen and not judge. And I can just imagine you're, you're, you're there in that really vulnerable position. And here comes this doctor with these opinions and you can't, you physically can't protect your body during that, during that experience. That's, that's awful. It, it was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. So I wound up writing in both cases, I wound up trying to educate and sending a, a bunch of like, I'm not going back to either of these two yeah. doctors for sure, but here's some information, you know, and when you're dealing with queer people or poly people or whatever, you know, learn about them. And it's not some sort of uh, recklessness or it, it, like there were a lot of really weird um, negative stereotypes in that case. Yeah. Know? Yeah, totally. So um, here I'm trying to be responsible. Right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you expect yeah. to be treated with dignity and not have who you are and how you move through the world and connect with other people pathologized. I want to mention to your audience that a website called The Buy Zone, and I can give you a link for that, uh, maintains a database of uh, people, uh, therapists who've self-selected to be part of this directory. So if you've had an experience where um, a therapist, whether gay, straight, whatever, um, might have uh, 
might have missed the mark in a really hurtful way and you just want someone who gets it either they're by themselves or they are affirmatively holding space for you um, that's a great resource to find someone i think that they have professionals in every state and i think abroad as well very good thank you and that's that is a great resource i'll be look forward to uh leaving you know providing that and keeping that on our yeah. uh, show notes for sure so what can we do to help your efforts, uh, you know, in Arizona or anything else that you're working on? Um, well, I think, you know, if people are whatever, whatever state you're in, I think take a step back. And even if it's not about what we're doing here, um, take a step back and think about how you talk about the issues that are close to you, because most people have friends and colleagues and family who are all over the political spectrum. And if you can just take some time to learn the like the lingo of, of others who you might not be connecting with and learn how to frame your ideas and your passions and the causes that you're standing up for in language that might be a little foreign to you, like liberty and first amendment and religious, whatever it is, pay attention to that language, approach people with their own words, because that's how you can make some inroads and really help people pause and think and build bridges. So take it into your everyday life and, and uh, see how it feels to take First Amendment for a spin. Use words like liberty and try it verbally first, because if you use them on social media, it'll look like a right wing dog whistle. Um, but but try it. That is good advice. Thank you. And I think I will try it in face-to-face uh, -face first because Twitter could be a problem. You don't want to get injured. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much, Alina. It's great to talk to you. You too, Robin. Thanks for having me on. Yo, what up? This is the poet known as Analysis. And you're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. This is what you need. Don't miss an episode. Welcome to our Ikigai segment. Ikigai is a Japanese term that roughly translates to life's purpose and ideally is the intersection of four things. What you're good at what you love, what you can be paid for, and what the world needs. Today, we're going to talk about what you're good at and imposter syndrome and how that kind of gets in the way of figuring out what you're good at. So that's, that's sort of my premise here. Imposter syndrome, that term was coined by uh, psychologists Suzanne Imes and Pauline Rose Clance in the 70s. And they were thinking it was applying mostly to high-achieving women. And since then, it's been recognized as it's a much more widely experienced phenomenon. Uh, and I find it interesting that they think that it affects women more than men. And especially, I guess, in the 70s, because in the 70s, women were just starting to enter fields that were normally male-dominated. And right. It makes me think of how fewer women were in the sciences and the farther, the higher up you go in classes, the fewer there yeah. are, that kind of yes. stuff. Yes. Well, I mean, I was, I was in college in the seventies learning electrical engineering. So I, and, and I, and I thought we had it bad, but the mechanical engineers had it worse. The women mechanical engineers had it way worse. 
because that's where you get, you know, you get your stereotypical motorheads in there and they're, they did not like sharing the shop with women wow. and they were, no, they got a lot of, they got like hazed. We didn't get hazed in the, in the electrical engineering, but, uh, the, the women in the mechanical engineering department had to go through like this hazing stuff. Uh, I remember talking to them about it and how awful it was, but some of the, the signs of imposter syndrome are self-doubt and inability to realistically access assess your competence and skills and you attribute your success to external factors or you berate your performance this is basically going through a list of how i am <laughs> i really have imposter syndrome really bad i guess my question is what do you think you're good at and do you think that you're being blocked from seeing other things that you're good at because of it i don't know i i there i go i guess i go through phases cuz there are a lot of things I'm good at. There's a lot of things I'm competent at. There's a lot of things I can do. There's like too many things. And and then I start thinking about that and listing it. And part of it is when I do start talking about this stuff, I get people after I list like the fourth thing, they're starting to not believe me, you know, try it, try me. All right. What are you good at? (laughs) I am a, I am a musician. I sing really well. Uh, I can draw. I'm an artist. I am an engineer, so I'm good at math and, you know, calculus and, and, uh, I've designed circuits and I invented a programming language and I can crochet, I can knit, I can do embroidery, I can bead, I can weave, I garden, um, I can play a whole bunch of instruments, not great. I can I can, I'm vaguely competent at piano, keyboards, bass, cello, guitar, Indian flute, like a Native American flute, not like a actual flute. Mm -hmm. Um, I cannot do reed instruments. I have tried and I, and I have a hell of a time on brass. I sounds like I'm farting, you know, (laughs) it's, uh, so those two things I can't do. Oh, I can't whistle. (laughs) Oh, wow. And my husband, my husband teases me about that. That's <laughs> so, an interesting one. That's I like, a, is that sort of a genetic thing? I have That's no idea. Your face muscles work. <laughs> I'm trying to whistle right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I think I don't get my lips to the right configuration. But anyway, those are a lot of things that you do, and I love. I really admire the. Oh, and that belly. Belly dancing. The belly dancing. <laughs> belly dancing. I forgot. I haven't done it in a while. That's so, great. Yeah. So it's, yeah, there's this huge amount of stuff that I can do. And I think, I mean, that that gave me other problems figuring out the other part, like what you love. You know, that that's a whole other discussion. But when you're good at a lot of things and people disbelieve it, and then you have to keep proving yourself, it kind of, it gets disheartening. And then you start to to doubt yourself because other people are doubting you. Mm. It's kind of like that. That's where I think it comes in for me. Interesting. That, yeah, that just, I have, a, I have a recent experience like that. Um, I'm good at things that have to do with order and writing and detail often, mm-hmm. you know, 
I also do have a science background. And so I've been good at doing things like research or the various things you need to do in a lab, you know? Okay. I'm glad that I've had those experiences and I really miss that space a lot. Um, I think I am good at facilitating conversations sometimes. I, you know, I, this, maybe this is imposter syndrome. I don't know, but I have <laughs> done a lot of, I've done a lot of working in communities and creating, you know, meeting spaces or meet up various types of meetups. And I, I think I'm good at that. I sometimes I get thrown by like the one or two people who are like way on the far end of not knowing how to sort of be in conversation with a whole group. If someone's <laughs> very, I, I, sometimes I don't know what to do if someone's um, like disruptive. really wants to be disruptive. Yeah. But I, but I try. So, you know, I'm, I'm modifying what I'm saying I'm good at right now. I shouldn't do that <laughs> maybe, but but those are those are a lot of the things I'm good at. I find that I am just because I'm good at something doesn't necessarily mean I I should spend all of my time doing it. So that's a a thing when I'm thinking about ikigai that I want to examine more. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even I didn't even mention the the fact that I was a technical writer for 30 years. So, yeah, I write too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but I mean, part of it, part of it is having, you know, a parent who has 34 novels that have been published and, you know, and reading her stuff and, and it's kind of intimidating. And I know that I I have another friend with a, with a very famous mother and it's like having famous accomplished parents seems to put, you know, it's like, there's a pressure on you to, to achieve more. And at some point, you're at a, a certain when you know when you get to be in your 60s and you haven't achieved more yet it's sort of like i don't know if that's going to happen and then you kind of have to say okay i'm not going to be you know better than my mother or even at that level you have to kind of just give up or just set you yeah, be happy with where you are <laughs> mm. you know um well you've also taken different i mean the things you wrote are different than what she wrote. So it's not, oh, it's yeah. almost like a separate, it's a separate oh, yeah. track. I you mean, know? yes. And I could think of it that way. Like I made way more money than she did writing. I made way more money than a lot of writers make writing, but I'm writing, you know, press B to activate the, <laughs> you know, the function that you're looking for you're, or, or this, that's it. Technical writing is not fun. <laughs> I find it a kind of an interesting challenge. I do a little bit of that for a blog that I write for. And it's about looking at, um, looking at a, you know, a, a website or something and how, how to navigate it, what to do, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it's, it's a challenge to get the words concise that are clear and not superfluous and not misleading. Like it's an interesting oh, yeah. type of writing and it, I, I, I enjoy the challenge of it and I think I'm good at it, but it's not terribly exciting. No, <laughs> so it's, it's not exciting. It's not exciting. Uh, it, it's also a little frustrating to, you know, you spend, well, a lot of it was for me, you know, you're basically, you get a spec for how a piece of software or hardware is supposed to work. And you're writing based on that because they haven't finished the software. So you can't use it to like say, okay, let me try this 
<clears throat> this procedure and see if it works. Um, I mean, a lot of it is is when you get to that phase, a lot of times you you end up being like a product tester. And you, I, I was really good at breaking software because it wasn't doing what the spec said it was supposed to do, uh, mm-hmm. which the engineers hated, but the marketing people loved because <laughs> they wanted to sell what the spec said and not what the people were de- developing. And then you learn to become an expert in Microsoft Word, which, you know, you don't let anybody else know that. Because the minute the office knows that you know how to do stuff in Word, you're basically fixing everybody's Word files for the rest <laughs> of your life. That's funny. So what of the... <laughs> What of the things that you're good at have you, I, I guess, I guess I'm curious about which of them do you feel like you've, you're really pursuing now or are there things oh. that you're good at that you still want to keep a hand in, but aren't that interested in? Like how, how what's that balance like for you? Uh, I don't know. You know, I go through, I go through phases. Like right now I am knitting because I started this ridiculous project and and I wish I had done the math before I started it because I calculated I have to do 78,000 stitches individual stitches and I am a little over halfway done and I know if I put it down I will never finish it mm. so I'm trying to finish it which is why if any this is why nothing else is getting done so cuz I'm knitting <laughs> <laughs> it's just knitting and knitting so I go through phases I I kind of want to be doing more painting in my watercolors but it's it's I haven't done any in, in in three weeks, and I'm trying to think about why that is. I mean, I'm looking. I look at my watercolor stuff. I walk by it every day, and I go, "Yeah, I need to get to. I need to get back to that." And I and then I say, "Well, no, but I have to do my twenty rows of knitting." So mm. <laughs> sort of, I make I make these priorities in my head, and and they shift around. I also have to, it is, you know, and I've also got stuff that is time sensitive because it's March and I got to get my seeds in because otherwise they're not going to be big enough to plant in the garden in May. So, you know, that takes up time. And, and I'm also deciding not to push myself and not work 12, 16, 18 hour days anymore. I don't do that anymore. So there's many fewer things I can get done in a day because I just, you know, I want to be with family and, you know, do social things instead. And uh, it's been weird, but. That sounds like a really good choice, you know, and yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a choice I made because, you know, I'm, I guess I'm semi-retired and that that's kind of getting into my head, mm-hmm. you know, since I pulled the trigger on my retirement money at the beginning of, actually it was before COVID, it was in December of 2019. And uh, when I became eligible for retirement money and the fact that I did that took a shitload of pressure off of me during the pandemic because I had like this minimum income coming in. Yeah. Which, which helped me because then I didn't have to, I didn't have to take away space from people who really needed to sell stuff to live, you know? Now I think imposter syndrome in my case has been more, well, I mean, there was the, the stuff of, you know, it manifests in, in like a few different things like, you know, perfectionism or, or, you know, you're trying to, to be 
you know, you're setting your goals too high. I do, I do, I used to do that a lot more than I do now. So, okay. I'm curious about that. So, okay. Well, goals, setting setting a goal that's high, higher than you can actually achieve or setting or what, or yeah, like unrealistic, unrealistic Hmm. goals, you know, like perfectionism. It, no, that's a different, it's, it's like, there's a list of things there's, they're, they're giving this article I'm looking at about imposter syndrome. They give you five types, five types. And, and it's like the perfectionist, the superhero, the expert, the natural genius, the soloist. And it's, and I, and I've gotten a little bit of all of these, you know, uh, perfectionists are never, are never, you're never satisfied. You know, it's like, you see, you see the errors in the thing that you made and, and I'm like, I'll go back to knitting because it's really easy to screw up a pattern when you're, and, and if you're not really paying attention, if you got something else going on and you're knitting like as a background task or just to keep your hands busy, sometimes you'll, you'll screw up a stitch. And I used to get upset about it until one of my friends who's a much better knitter than I am said it, it has to pass the, the galloping horse test. And that means if you can't see it from the back of a galloping horse, like if you're running by it on a galloping horse, then it's not a problem. You know, it, <laughs> it's like, it, and it, they do that in quilting. Like they, there's a, they used to come up with this saying that it, that you make a mistake in a quilt on purpose because you're not supposed to be perfect. And that's an, a, an affront to God or something like that. And then that was that, that rumor was debunked. I think that okay, was I heard to, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one that. of those things that you hear. Oh yes. It's because, you know, the, the group in Pennsylvania. Amish? <laughs> yes. Thank you. The Amish <laughs> quilts, you know, they're so well done. And that's, that's where, that's where they say that came from. And it didn't, you know, so, so when your, your corners don't match up, you don't, you may not get the blue ribbon, but okay. So what, but the lofty goals, you know, like, oh, my first book is going to be a bestseller. And then when it's not, it's like you really feel, oh, it's like if you don't make it on the first try, then they don't want to, you don't want to do it anymore. Okay. That makes sense to me now because I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with having high aspirations. I would, I would like to be able to keep aspiring to do what I think I can do and beyond, you know, Mm -hmm. but if you think. If that's going to make you give up, then that's not healthy. Yeah, that's that's really it. what it is. You know, it's like your, your your first piece of art is going to be, you know, a masterpiece and hang in the Louvre. Yeah. You know, that it, it's it's having unrealistic and excessively lofty goals, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like like Goddess Mandala is going to go super platinum, double platinum or something like that. <laughs> I, I, Goddess yeah. Mandala is the name of my first album, if you wanted to know. Yes. <laughs> you wanted to buy it and make it go double platinum. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, but I, um, I, I tend to want to uh, prove somebody wrong if they think I can't do something. That's been, I think, my pattern more than anything. Oh, that's like anti-imposter syndrome. <sighs> well, I don't know, because I think I go through that. So I had a situation... Um, this past week or so past couple weeks where basically got some feedback or not exactly feedback but I was going to be working on something leading something that I am no longer going to be leading I was told oh okay it's I felt I wound up feeling like 
okay, you know, the, the, the powers that be probably don't think that I'm capable as a leader or whatever, you know, it's a sort of an unusual situation, but that was the upshot of how I felt about this, you know? So it made me really question like, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm really not good enough, you know? And I think I still feel that a little bit, but I mostly feel, well, fuck that. Yeah. I'll just, I can do lots of things. And I've done a lot of things that are in the order of this particular situation. So um, now I want to go, I want to go find these people and smack them. No, so. no, no, no. It's all, <laughs> no it's I'm not going fine. to. I'm not going to. But it's, but it's good to, um, it's good for me. It was, it's kind of an interesting exercise for me to notice how i how I reacted to it. And I think I did kind of recoil and I got all hurt and I was like, wow, I guess I'm really not, maybe I'm not all I think I am, or maybe I'm mm -hmm. not good enough to do whatever, you know? And, and that, I think it's sort of refocused me and like, okay, what is important? And all of COVID, I think it's really refocused me like in terms of what do I really want to keep pursuing? What can I, where can I expand, you know? And I think the kinds of leadership roles that this involves are, those are things I want to do. I think I want to limit the organizations and the places and the times, uh, you know, because I want to do other things. I want to write and want to, and maybe writing has part of, is part of this, you know, mm. to really put forth some of my, um, some of the things that I, I really want to say that, I've, that have, that scare me okay. to say. So I get, I get determined. I get, I get dejected and then I get determined, I think is usually what well, happens. Yeah. When you feel that you have a skill set and there are people who deny that or disbelieve it or, or think it's insufficient, it's hard not to internalize that, mm. you know, um, but hopefully it's because they don't understand your actual capabilities or that they there's other there's agendas that are going on that you don't know about that that you know like you don't get the job because they are hiring you know a friend's child or or a friend or just something else happened that that exclude that makes you not the candidate and I'm not saying you as you, Robin, I mean, talking you as in anybody. Yeah. Because uh, that's, you know, the the rejection is, is that's a whole other, it's all the psychological stuff. Just getting rejected from something that you wanted to do is, is painful anyway, just in itself and how, you know, and, and it's like, then you have to, when you're handling the rejection, you're going, okay, is it me? Is it them? Is it, you know, and you don't know. And, and it's very easy to decide that it's something you did when it's not necessarily something, anything that you did. Mm, true. 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 Yeah. So anyway, I like this question and it's got me thinking about what are the things that I'm good at that I can apply to the things that I most want to do. Yeah. Because, you know, because I think of it in terms of like classes of things. Instead of as much as I, I, you named a lot of specifics you're good at. And I guess I was thinking more in terms of <laughs> I'm good at, I have some leadership qualities. I'm good at detail. I'm good at disciplines generally. Uh huh. 
you know, meditation and music and yoga, like doing something that's a practice that you can do every day. And so, yeah, so I'm thinking about the things I want to be doing now and writing music and some pros are there, um, keep working on this podcast and stuff like that. And so I'm thinking about those traits and how I can utilize those. And, And part of it is, is discipline and, Making making the time for things that I want to get done and making sure they're done, you mm-hmm. know, because I can do that for everybody else. I'm good. I'm good at doing that for all kinds of other assignments I have sometimes, and letting myself go. And I'm tired of that. Yeah, the, that's. I think okay, okay. If we're gonna, we can we can backtrack for a second. I I find it interesting about how we think about things. I am definitely very. From what you said, I'm very. I am very specific about about what the things I can do are and I, and I could generalize it better, but, and I think that's because I've been thinking about how, how, you know, I'm a step ahead, like what I can get paid for. I'm trying to think about what, you know, what in the arts can I do that is going to actually bring income into the house? Mm-hmm. You know, what specific aspect of it, you know, right now it's like, I'm thinking selling stickers and, and coloring book pages is going to do it, but I don't know. Um, and you're very high level on that. And I'm very, you know, down in the, down in the dirt there with stuff. It's, it's kind of, that's interesting. Yeah. Could be, we might make a good team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm skipping over. I'm sort of like, you know, on the, what you can, I'm thinking I've always got that, what can, I can be paid for in the back of my head. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, I'm, I am finally after, and I, and I think this is part of retirement thinking. I'm thinking about what's good for me. What's the best things I can be doing for myself right now. It's, it's the helping me be selfish a little bit. And, and, and I think that's what COVID did for me. It, it kind of really showed me how important self-care is mm-hmm. for everything. And, and I, you know, I, I, I know you you do a lot for a lot of other people, but you also you need to put yourself higher up on your list. One hundred percent priorities. <laughs> I do. I'm trying. I'm I'm doing better at that. Good. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I hope this uh, little discussion was helpful for somebody <laughs> besides <laughs> us. I, I appreciate my my therapy session. For <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> Thank you, Wendy. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Thomas Limoncelli. Web hosting by InMotion. And remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash leftscape. Thanks for listening.